Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. To read Alex Miller's A Brief Affair is to, con- is to question the conventional notions of what an affair actually is. So, Alex, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Fran Egan has a one-night sa- stand, so to speak, but it means so much more to her. It wasn't an affair, that sordid word. She was not a woman who had betrayed her husband with another man. She would refuse to name it that. It was simple and it was pure unsullied and unknown, a mystery to such things as moral choice. You're sort of redefining the word affair. Well, the title, A Brief Affair, doesn't refer to that incident that you're talking about. But I'm sure everybody thinks it does. What you're saying is it's a one-night stand. That's what it is, a one-night stand, however, with ramifications that bubble on through her life. But the one night, the, the one night stand is one thing. The brief affair is referred to by Valerie, her friend who is my age. Later on in the book, Valerie and Francis, who's finally forty-two, young woman, they're sitting there together, and Francis is thinking and talking, possibly to herself. I don't remember the exact situation. And then Valerie, who's observing her the way an old person might observe you when you're younger. And she says, Ah, Francis, life, it's such a brief affair. And at 85, which is what I am, that's the way life seems. The circle is nearly complete. You're in the last chapter yourself, and you're looking, in a sense, at life from a different angle, from the last chapter Back to the beginning, the first chapter, your earliest memories have returned and the thing is about to join up and form its little circle, another little circle of a human being. And I it's, can see you want to say something, sorry. <laughs> it's that moment though. So Fran Egan has that moment with her warrior, so to speak, and it is, as I said, a moment that she stays with her for the rest of her life. It's important as something she possesses, she owns, that completes her as an individual, irrespective of her marriage to Tom. And that's the same with a lot of other characters. So we we will come to to Valerie, but Valerie and Jesse and the reasons for their relationship, uh, and Jesse, even though she passes away, stays with Valerie. But if I can just work you back a little here, Fran is an academic, a professor. I think you're uh, taking a dig at universities because the campus is actually an old asylum. And it's known by various words um, as a lunatic asylum. It was for refractory females, later called a hospital. But this then goes to this notion of if we're defining affair, defining lunacy and how society sees people, sees affairs, sees people's um, mental behaviour. The um, days when it was called Lunatic Asylum, Sunbury, 
Sunbury became Sunbury campus of Victoria University. Um, it isn't anymore, but it was briefly, and a haunted place, haunted by the suffering of the people who had once been incarcerated there, as Valerie had. The thing is that in those days the tracks were very narrow that you lived between. These days, thank God, there's a generation, and it's my children's generation, which has just taken those tracks away totally. At the moment they call it LGBTQI, which is a longhand for us, human beings, who we are. It incorporates and understands and accepts, not as them and us, but as us. And Valerie was one of us. She was a lesbian. She was not approved of, either in her school or later on in her work. And she was punished for that. People were punished for not keeping to the fucking tracks, you know. I should have hit the pause button. Oh, can't you swear? <laughs> we, we will get away with it, hopefully. I swear but on the, the, uh, the ABC. Oh, really? Oh. Bloody oath. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody oath, I think, is well, acceptable. Sort of freedom now. I, think, I don't know. It's about... <laughs> it makes us who we a are. A generation and a half ago that I heard Jermaine Greer say something like that. LGBTQI. I think we'll add the F in there as well because that makes us who we are. <laughs> yeah. But now there's a connection between Fran and Valerie because Fran's room in the university was the room that Valerie occupied and there's a sense of a presence that Fran feels but it's made more poignant by the discovery of a notebook. Now the interesting thing here is the notebook is given to her by Joseph, the now caretaker who was a gardener, who had married Eleni. Uh, Eleni. Um, and you've almost now got a story within a story, because uh, Joseph can tell the history of the campus. Eleni, uh, Eleni having difficulty pronouncing my words this morning, um, was an inmate, and yet she is saved by Joseph. Eleni had um, inner voices uh, speaking to her, and Joseph helped her with that, and so she was redefined, <laughs> uh, and they had a marriage, etc. But it's Joseph that tells that past, that history, and f fills in that picture of Valerie and why she was there in the first place. Because of the social... Her father was a... a um, QC? Was he? Judge. Uh, judge. Chief Judge of the Supreme Court, Court. of Australia. Yeah. So that... Uh, Basically, she had to be classified because it didn't fit the judge's perception of how things should be. I think it was the teachers at school and uh, also where she went to a, um, to a boarding school and she was expelled, I think. The implication is for having an affair with another girl. Um, and then he sent her over to England to live with his sister, which he thought was a safe bet, just get her out of the way, get the scandal off my back, was his feeling, I guess, although I don't go into those details. And, um, yeah, that's where she met this wonderful woman who was her, I guess she was her aunt, and she really opened the world to her in a way that um, she never would have had it open to her in uh, Australia had she stayed here. But also then, this notebook reveals 
Valerie's relationship with Jesse, but Jesse hasn't survived that experience of social pressure upon her. And yet here we have this constant voice of Jesse in the background. This is the audience for, for whom Valerie is writing, which sustains uh, Valerie, even though she's been incarcerated. Do we all have a voice that is holding us? Because, I mean, it was Joseph that was helping uh, Alani with her voices and such like, holding people together. Well, they're a community and they have something in common that makes them a community. And I think that's what you're pointing at, really, is, is the point that they are all different and all the same in the sense that they're all part of the human family and they're people who've lived outside the rails, been forced outside the narrow rails of those days. Rails, I mean, I'm 85, I grew up with those rails around us and um, definitions of who you were, who you're supposed to be, who are you. When I came to Australia as a boy of 16 on my own, nobody ever asked me, where are you from, who are you, what are you supposed to be, normal or what? In England, I had to explain myself all the time. Where did I fit in? It didn't matter here, you're just another person. I was lucky, very lucky, because I was a male and I wasn't black. So I had a great reception and life was very easy for me. And I felt I'd come home. So I was, I went from being an outsider in England to being central in the tracks in Australia. So I always look back at these things. They, they, they um, are part of my perception of life and history and work. And whenever I write a story, I think if you look at lots of my books, you will find that the voice is the voice of a woman because... In a sense, when I grew up, we had no voice. The working class people were only ever portrayed on the ABC, on the BBC as either poor, stupid or in prison, not to be trusted, and certainly not one of us. And uh, women had a similar problem. I mean, I wrote a book called uh, Conditions of Faith, which is really my story, but it's the story of a woman, Emily, who um, has a struggle to be taken seriously. I had that struggle. From where I stood, you couldn't become a serious writer. I was an uneducated working-class boy uh, after the war. Well, let's put him on a farm, get him to work. That's where he belongs. Don't plant the spuds upside down, you little bugger. You know, whereas out here, I was accepted as a person, a full-blooded person, and I saw I had a future. I felt that. I felt that freedom. And it's part of what you're talking about, that Jessie actually suicides in the end because she's made to suffer. She's taken away from her lover and her friend. And she's the one Valerie writes to. Yeah, you're right. And also then, I mean, Valerie had lost her mother because uh, she presumably suicided she as well. She suicided. Because of the social pressures yeah, around her much as well. It. Now, interestingly, there's another section, the third section. You can either fight back or go under in those circumstances. And people might wonder why you were so antisocial or whatever. I mean, because society was anti-you anyway. But you need support. So Joseph has supported Eleni to come out of uh, and be accepted. Uh, and you need that 
moment like the um, warrior that Fran had to sustain one. And so Valerie's also had Jessie as her audience, even though Jessie has departed. The other interesting thing is that uh, Fran and Tom, her husband Tom, have two children, Maggie and Tommy, two children finding their own voices as well, which is interesting on their farm. So the struggle is for each age. To go through. Yeah, it seems pretty normal. Well, yeah, very much. You're not born, I mean, in a sense you are. I guess I saw my son being born when he came out of staff. I uh, knew he was himself already. He wasn't going to be trained into being something else by me, certainly not, or by Steph. And he grew up and lived with us and became fully himself. Same with our daughter. And it was, a, yeah, it was a, a great moment of understanding of what humanity is in some ways when I had a first child because it was so obvious that he brought it all with him into the world and it just needed nurturing. And this is the same for for Maggie and Tommy finding themselves in their environment. As I said, central to the novel is is Valerie's notebook. Um, and basic... Could have called it that, actually. Sorry? I could have called it that. You could have called it that, indeed. But also then, because Fran is reading Valerie's notebook, the, the, the notebook written for Jessie, it's given a new audience. It becomes more than just that interaction between Valerie and Jessie, more than just sustaining Valerie in her time, but now something important to uh, Fran, or a new discovery of the notebook by somebody who didn't own it, hadn't written it, didn't know about it until it was given to them. Francis, the main character in the centre of the book, who has a one-night stand with a uh, guy who looks like a Mongol warrior in China, she um, reads the notebook and finds in it this personality, this person, this voice, which attracts her deeply. And she assumes that the author of it is dead by now. The author is, in fact, my age, and not quite dead yet, but in the last chapter, or in the death zone, as they say, or as I say, anyway. And uh, once you're 80, you start moving down that track that uh, Jerry Lee Lewis just left at the end of. Uh, God bless him. And, um, yeah, she finds that the person who wrote the notebook is still alive. And it gives to the woman who is still alive, when she gets the notebook back, she says, oh, my God, you know, this is my old notebook. This is where I was at that stage of my life. And it is, darling Jessie, for God's sake, come back to my life at the end of it. So she reads the notebook herself, the one she wrote many years ago, as a new piece of work and as a new voice to her and to her friend, her new friend, the woman who's just given her the book, you know. So I didn't plan any of that. It just kind of happened. It's it's all interwoven. Yeah. Um, I guess life is too, isn't it? And each and every individual in the novel is finding their own voice, finding a moment that can sustain them, finding uh, their own personalities and identities, um, and... 
also, I think you're saying something about authorship uh, and how things are read over time. So the work is A Brief Affair, the author, Alex Miller, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Alex, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. And now I am going to go to Jan's interview with Heather Rose. Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here is the title of the book. And from the title, you would expect an upbeat book. Yes and no. Heather Rose is the author and welcome back to Published or Not, Heather. Hello, Jan, and it's lovely to be here with you again. (laughs) Well, Heather, you did have an idyllic childhood. Where was it? I grew up in Tasmania, uh, south of Tasmania. I grew up in a little suburb south of Hobart and as a child we also spent a lot of time on the Tasman Peninsula. You had a lot to do with your grandparents and you, your grandfather taught you about the beauty of the bush and how not to get lost in it, which is quite important. It is important. It was a very useful skill and what time of the day it was without checking a clock and so many things he taught me. But most of all, I think his greatest gift to me was to show me what... The book has a subtitle, A Memoir of Loss and Discovery. You were 12 when your family changed abruptly. What happened? Mm. My brother and my grandfather were very close and they spent a lot of time together. And on this particular day, they were collecting a net in a, in a squall that had come in after a very calm morning and they fell out of the boat. And so you've written about the grief and one of the quotes from your book, it's a wound that breaks open again and again. And another, grief is a pilgrimage, a long song, a poem that is never quite finished. Well, what were the repercussions of this accident on your family? It destroyed my family. Uh, My mother and father uh, were utterly broken by the death of my brother. And, of course, my mum lost the two people she loved most in the whole world. She lost her dad and she lost her firstborn son. And she had an extremely close relationship with both of those people. So she was devastated. And for those of us who have been witness to people who've experienced extreme grief, it can change personalities. It can it can change everything mm-hmm. for that person and how they see the world. And I think we're only now understanding that it actually changes the brain, which is mm-hmm. why we get those shifts. And mum was so broken, broken by it. And she and so my parents separated. She fell in love with someone else. My brother, my remaining brother and sister and I did the best we could going through our teenage years but you know we were pretty all pretty messy and then eventually we all just went into different parts of the world and and have largely been separated from each other ever since really. So you're right by the end of year 12 I'm living alone in the home where we were once a family and later in the book Your parents have spoken less than 50 words to each other in more than 40 years. I've never heard my dad say a bad word about our mother, nor our mother say a good word about our father. But let's go back to the subtitle, A Memoir of Loss and Discovery. So when you were younger, you prayed a lot 
to God to bring you a horse. It didn't <laughs> come. So, you know, you, you sort of, you lacked your faith in God, but you were spiritual. Yes, it's interesting when I think back to that. I was determined that there was something because my dad is a beautiful man and he is a Christian and it's not my faith, but I grew up in that faith. And I watched him get so much out of that connection with this mysterious invisible force. So I figured that there must be something that was going on. So when I was 10, as you said, I decided that uh, I would pray for a horse because if you prayed, you were meant to get the things you wanted and then the horse didn't show up. So I started to doubt this sort of idea of a, a God up in the sky, but I was still really curious. And then, of course, when my brother died and my grandfather died, I had an experience where I saw my brother post his death and he appeared in the hallway outside the bedroom door and, and then he appeared again and I began to think, ah, maybe the veils between life and whatever is beyond life are, are a little thinner than I imagined. And I think that really caused me to start to look deeply at what other ways there were of looking at this thing we called life and... Another quote from your book, once we thought we knew all about life, but it turns out everything we think of as reality is less than 5%. What is this thing called life? Why am I here? So this searching for spiritualism is what took you to study Buddhism in Thailand? Yes, yes, indeed. And I started to get very interested in all of the occult and then I moved into Buddhism and meditation and I had some very interesting people come into my life who shared you know, esoteric writing and you know, some of the great writers of that era of the sort of 60s, 70s. And I ended up in Thailand in a, in a monastery out on the border of Laos for many months and I loved it. I loved it. It was a very intense period of time and I was 19 and we would meditate for 13 to 16 hours a day, but it was a, an enormously rich and enervating experience for me and it, it changed the way I saw the world after that. Well, this spiritualism led you to an experience under a double rainbow in the Australian desert as well as steam lodges, a vision quest, and spirit dancing with Native Americans in the deserts of North America. This was just an incredible piece of writing. It, you know, it was like your own adventure story. I've never read about things like this before, and we're not going to talk too much about it because you've got to read the book to just get the full impact of your experience there. Phenomenal. But in more ways than one, that experience with uh, spirit dancing connected you to trees so yes it did <laughs> mm, read the book understand why so let's bring that back to Hobart what did you do in Hobart about trees well I did have this profound connection with trees and of course growing up in Tasmania the forests are magnificent the rainforests are so precious to us Tasmania has had a long history of forestry selective logging and very fine timbers that went on to become beautiful pieces of craft and art and there were sawmills and you know we've had a, a big forestry industry here in Tasmania but a new process came in where they were clear felling the forests and causing environmental chaos 
an arts festival was created and in its second iteration, the main sponsor was announced and it was Forestry Tasmania. And this is just after thousands of people had marched in the street to complain about forest practices. It was a very strategic move by the government to try and launder the public image of Forestry Tasmania through the arts. And we're all, we're all aware of that. It's a common strategy by governments to do that. But for Tasmanians, it was particularly galling. And so the artists got together, about 50 of us, and we decided to run a pledge campaign. And within 10 days, we had replaced the money that Forestry Tasmania had offered the festival, which was $50,000. Within 20 days, we'd raised $75,000 in pledges. And the campaign went on uh, over the coming year leading into the festival, which was biannual. Despite everything, despite everything, the government wouldn't let it go. The Forestry Tasmania money was never replaced. And it was a very vicious campaign against the writers, against artists, and also really challenging in a small community because many artists wanted to participate in the festival and we wanted them to participate in the festival. We did. It wasn't the festival that we wanted to have any impact on. It was the notion of what is acceptable as sponsorship money. The book is Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here, a memoir of loss and discovery. And another discovery was your genetic illness, diagnosed after collapsing from swinging on a chandelier in London. So what is AS? These days it's been renamed something so much more easy to pronounce, axial spondyloarthropathies. So it's it's an arthritic condition that causes the joints and the muscles to flare across the body, starts in the sacroiliac joints usually, and then moves to every joint and ligament in the body. And it can go from zero to eight or nine in terms of pain levels within a couple of hours, within 10 minutes, actually. It's a very debilitating condition. It's caused me to be unable to walk for weeks on end, be bedridden for months on end too, from time to time. It's, it's been a, I think I referred to it in the book as a hallowing presence. It's caused me to have to really look at gratitude. Another quote from the book and how you describe it, living with a house guest who never leaves. You talk about, you know, what helps you medically and personally, but why do your children call you Meryl? (laughs) My children, who are all grown up now, call me Meryl because I'm so good at looking great, even when I'm in excruciating pain. (laughs) They say I could win an Oscar for, for managing to look good when I'm not. Another quote from the book, Parenting is a long lesson in letting go. And there's a beautiful story about you and Christopher taking him on a rite of passage when just when he's about to become a teenager and getting grumpy and moody, whereabouts do you take him? <laughs> we went on the Overland Track, which is a five or six day walk from Cradle Mountain all the way down to Lake St. Clair. It's about a 70 kilometre walk. And we had a wild and wonderful time. <laughs> I have done that walk and I absolutely loved rereading your descriptions of it because Heather Rose does a very good description. But another quote, parenting is hard, but it's something else in your life that requires the greatest discipline, the longest hours and the deepest commitment. What's that? 
writing, <laughs> trying to write a novel every single time. The memoir has been the hardest thing I've ever written. Oh, well, it is very personal and fascinatingly personal. I didn't realise you were such a fascinating woman, Heather Rose. But I hadn't heard the term mother writers before. And mother writers do it very differently, don't they? Well, I mean, I, I had to write at the end of the days because my children, they needed my attention. My business needed my attention. So I didn't have the luxury of working through the day, but I was so determined to write a shelf full of books by the time I was very old that I would start work again at nine o'clock at night and I worked and often until two or three in the morning to get my first novel done and then I fell into that practice ever after that and it wasn't until after the Museum of Modern Love won the Stella Prize and the Christina Stead and I got some money for the first time from the Australia Council that I was able to put myself to work during the day and that's what created the time to write Bruni and it was the first novel I'd ever written during the daytime and it was so wonderful being able to just get up first thing and get to my desk and work all day and uh, it, it changed everything for me in that regard. The last discovery that I thought of that was particularly interesting from Heather Rose was swimming regularly in the Derwent River. Yes, just yesterday. Mm, you know, Tasmania water, not very warm. No, it gets down to about 10 degrees, but it's been a marvellous practice. And I also love the solitude. In a way, it's a form of meditation for me to go in when the water is glassy calm here in the morning, sun's on the water. It's a bracing experience, but it's innovating in ways that I had no idea about. And it's, it's also taught me a great deal of gratitude and an acute awareness of how important it is for us to look after our oceans and waterways in ways that we just simply are not. The last quote, of course, comes from your book. The cold has taught me a certain fearlessness. I procrastinate less. I need less. I am more grateful. I live more simply. Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here is a deeply personal collection filled with reflections of love, death, creativity and healing, dealing with courage and joy from Heather Rose, the award-winning author of Bruni and Museum of Modern Love. Thank you once again, Heather. Thank you, Jan. It's been a delight.